0: Hello and welcome to the show. If you're listening for the first time, I'm Vas Christodoulou, How To Academy's deputy director, and this is the How To Academy podcast, the series where we meet the most exciting thinkers in global culture and take a deep dive into their lives and ideas. When Canadian ecologist Suzanne Simard discovered how trees communicate through fungal networks, her findings were dismissed and ridiculed. But today, she is world-renowned for transforming our understanding of the lives of forests. She was the inspiration for one of the protagonists in Richard Power's magnificent novel, The Overstory. You can hear more about that in our interview with him a couple of months back. And Amy Adams is set to play her in a forthcoming movie of her life. Suzanne has just published a memoir called Finding the Mother Tree. And on a trip to the UK a couple of weeks back, she joined author and traveller Sophie Roberts to tell her story live on stage. The event was hosted in partnership with The Conduit, a collaborative community dedicated to creating a just, prosperous and sustainable future. They are doing fantastic work and I urge you to check them out. Here are Sophie and Suzanne.
1: I would like to start by asking you to draw a picture of your home, of that forest where your roots begin. Yeah,
2: so um, imagine the west coast of British Columbia with this huge Pacific Ocean that's kind of, it's very tumultuous. Um, it sweeps across the continent and hits a whole bunch of mountains. And those mountains are the Cordelia, western Cordilleran of West of North America and where I'm from, British Columbia, is the most mountainous part, and that weather slams into those mountains, rises up, and rains like crazy, and that rain feeds these absolutely magnificent forests. These are the West Coast rainforests. They're some of the most magnificent forests of the world. They're Equally as precious as the Amazon and the Congo. I know you've written about the Congo. They're as precious as the Indonesian rainforests because they're so diverse and they're so productive. And you can imagine, and probably many of you have been there, um, these trees that live to thousands of years old. They can be 2,000 years old, 3,000 years old easily when they reach their old age. And um, there's many species entwined together. The understory is full of massive logs that go to the height of this ceiling. And creatures live in and on and inside these logs. um, That They're such an essential part. And they are the elders of the forest that have gone on. They're into the next generation. So just imagine like this forest that is just enormous and beyond most of our imaginations. Even I, when I get into these immense forests, I'm just awestruck and that
1: is where i grew up and it is quite an amazing journey she takes us on in this book because it's also the landscape of your childhood and there are so many exquisite images of you collecting huckleberries with your brother kind of digging right into that the riding horses camping in the woods collecting your father's stories your grandmother's stories i'd like you to take us a little deeper into that and tell us about how those trees are woven with your family history
2: Yeah, so my family moved across Canada from Quebec and into British Columbia in the late 1800s. And they were loggers in Quebec, and they carried on that trade in these rainforests of British Columbia. And so they lived right deep in the rainforest. And they had huge horses, actually not that many, two massive horses, and um, they had to be large enough. So they were about 3,000 pounds, just imagining the size of these horses so that they could haul these massive logs. And so they set up this family operation just by trial and error in these mountains, made all of the tools by hand, fed their horses by hand using straw that they pulled in from the, the neighboring towns. The initial road was was a wagon road, And my grandfather and my great grandfather built flumes along the sides of the mountains where they were logging these massive trees with these horses and pulled these logs to these flumes and then sent them down into this big lake called Mabel Lake, which is where I spent a lot of my, my childhood on that lake. And then ultimately those logs were taken down this massive river called uh, the Swap River, which is a First Nations name, and, uh, and taken to a nearby mill and turned into various products eventually. But yeah, it was a very dangerous and very slow and deliberate way of making a living, but it was also a poor we were not poor we were not rich we were quite poor um making just enough to to, ra- to raise the family so i am
1: so glad that she has brought up that anecdote of the flume because i was talking to a dear friend of mine um uh, just prior to this event and the thing you need to know is we're sitting with one of the most important scientists of a, of an epoch but also a really literary voice that moves you in the way she writes every image and that um image of the this huge uh, timber falling i'm just going to read you three sentences if i may the tree whooshed through the air its crown catching the wind like a sail creating such an eddy that the ferns below blew forward revealing their pale undersides branches and needles swirling in seconds the tree landed with a deafening thud the ground shuddering limbs cracking like bones breaking a nest of birds catching a draft and floating to the earth in a cloud of feathers. I just think you write like a dream. <laughs> and I was so glad because this friend of mine before, he pulled out those three sentences and said, look at this. Anyway, your grandfather, great-grandfather, some very powerful influences. The gentleman that was missing a finger and missing a an ear... Grandpa?
2: My grandfather, yeah. And my uncles, they all miss, were missing fingers.
1: <laughs> and what did he teach you about the forest that you brought through to your professional life?
2: He, oh, so much, you know. And, and I don't think that I really realized it as a kid how much I was learning just following him around. But he was he was a Frenchman. He'd been through, as a logger, had, been, had many accidents. In fact, he was quite accident-prone. <laughs> One time, he was... Um, he was out falling trees by himself, which is, you shouldn't do that, by the way. Um, anyway, this cedar tree fell down and swooshed and, and cut off his ear, and his ear was hanging by a skin, and he managed to um, get his boat, because he had to cross the lake and then go up the river to get home. And my Uncle Jack found him at home with his ear, you know, bleeding and hanging down on his neck, and he's going, Dad! And he took him to the hospital, you know, with this one piece of skin hanging down, and somehow the, the doctors sewed it back on. And so he had an ear, but it was kind of awkward. <laughs> Another time, he was out logging, and the tree fell on his back. And he broke his back. And so when I knew him as a child, he, he walked like this. So he was, you know, but he was still a logger, like just hunched over. And, and so I would follow him around and he would, you know, to him the forest was, that was his family, right? He, he knew all the trees. He made little trails through the forest. Um, he, with his pickaxe, everything was by hand. And when they were logging, he would pick out that one, like in a room like this, he'd pick out that one tree and that would be the tree for the week that the loggers would, go and cut that tree down and then of course haul his horses would haul it to the flume. So it's very, very slow and deliberate.
1: Oh, there's one picture in the book. The picture has the, the book has various family heirloom images in it and there's one with these gentlemen standing on kind of steps stuck into the tree. Is that right? Yeah. How does that work? It, it's amazing.
2: There yeah, there's springboards. So <laughs> yes, yeah, so so the big cedar trees of of the West Coast in the inland rainforest where I grew grew up they have they have a curve to them kind of almost womanly right like a woman's hips cuz they and then the roots go out into the soil and so they have you know they're straight and then they curve down like this and and also it's snows so the snow can be 3 or 4 meters deep and so whether they're logging in the summer or the winter, they have to get above that curve or above the snow. And so they put these, um, they, they chop in these uh, little niches really, little, a little ledge into the, into the wood, and then they put a, a board in, a springboard, it's called a springboard, one on each side, and a man would be on one side and a man on the other side with a crosscut saw, and they would spend about three or four days cutting down this one big tree back and forth, back and forth. And I do describe that scene in in the book about, you know, what it was like for my uncle and my grandfather to cut down a tree and, you know, smoking their Cravenaise and eating their salmon jerky and eating the the pie for, for lunch. And, yeah, it's quite, it evokes a lot of romance, I guess, about the forest, but it was very romantic.
1: Romantic, but also slow, measured, thoughtful, sustainable. Yeah intelligent work and we'll move on to what that now isn't um but one thing and, and one thing that is this rooting to a place it really is a very powerful theme in the first part of the book it matters more than ever as we watch this horrific thing happening in you you know ukraine and the deracination of a people but that feeling of belonging you say i can't tell if my blood is in the trees or if the trees are in my blood. And I think that's the sort of the foundation of the of the book, really, isn't it? Right mm-hmm. at the start. But what you build on is this extraordinary ability to notice detail. And that comes from, from belonging to a place, I think. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us a little bit about the kind of development of that notice as I? Your childhood, the sort of things that... The, some of those scenes where the tiny things we all miss that you... Didn't just not miss. You ate them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when you live in a place, you know, that that you go to every single day, and those trees are your family and your friends. You notice their home, and it's your home too. I knew every tree around my home, the birch tree and the fir tree and the the cedar trees. And um, my brother and I would build forts and we'd build trails through the forest. And so you get to know every plant, every tree, every rock. And so that's when I, you know, even as young as three or four or five playing in those forests, you get to know all those plants and they're your friends so that's how i built my skills of observation i guess that really uh, helped me later in life because i really do notice
1: tell us (laughs) the story about the dog
2: (laughs) so we had a dog named jigs and jigs uh jigs is a beagle um a baying beagle (laughs) a curious beagle he had big floppy ears and he was always getting into trouble. So he's kind of like my Grandpa Henry, you know, Grandpa was always accident prone. Jigs was always getting into trouble. Um, I think I follow in their footsteps because I'm always getting into trouble too. But um, anyway, one day Jigs was up in the forest, and we were we were in a logger's houseboat on the lake. And that logger's houseboat my grandfather had built, so loggers, lumberjacks would stay in these houseboats. Um, but we would holiday there uh, every year. And so there was a gang plank that went onto the shore, and there was an outhouse up in the bush, surrounded by trees, and. One morning, we're getting up, and we hear this, oh, oh, and immediately we all knew Jiggs had fallen in the outhouse. <laughs> so my Uncle Wilfred, who was moored in a, a, another loggers' houseboat, about 100 meters away, comes running up the shore with his pickaxe, and my grandfather comes running down the gangplank, and we're all up there, too. Jigs is in the outhouse! Jiggs is in the outhouse! And my little brother especially was so excited. You know, he was probably... Th- you know, about four years old, I was about six. And so we run up there and fling open the outhouse door and oh come all these flies and all the stink and there's Jigs down in the hole. <laughs> Bang! Wanting to get out, of course. And so all of the Frenchmen were all around and they start digging Jigs out because you, he was six feet down. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of wet down there. <laughs> And so they started digging from the sides and they dug and dug and we, I just was fascinated. So I watched, you know, as they went through the roots and then the layers of the soil. And when you're watching something so dramatic, you start noticing things like the soil is actually like a layer cake when you actually start watching it there's there's like a dark layer and then a white layer and then a yellow layer in these forests, and then a red layer as red as a beating heart and down at the bottom of that red beating heart was jigs and it took probably a few hours and we finally finally got down to jigs and we're trying to pull him out by his paws and I had to dig further and further and and then my uncle and grandfather pulled him out covered in toilet paper <laughs> And off, you know, I was, I took jigs down to the lake and we went for a swim.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But that incident um, was a moment where you were going right into these networks in the earth. And it is, I don't know how many of you know that wonderful book by James Wood, The Art of Fiction. He talks about you've got to be a good notice of things to be a great writer. And this is the extraordinary thing, Suzanne, because she is that literary thing of being a great notice of things paired with science and this is where the book kind of comes alive in this very very original space and the linking between these this lockstep between family and your scientific discoveries which we will move on to i just want everybody to really feel the 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 roots that suzanne has in the forest and makes so powerful the sense of place in that early part of the book But I would like to ask you about some of the relationships with family Mm. that you weave with those interconnections in the forest societies. Your sister, your parents, your friend, your ex-husband, your kids, your partner. Not one of those relationships is stronger or lesser than another. You treat them with equal respect and compassion. She says in the acknowledgments, "This this is a love song to your family. And you do that so kindly. But what I would like to ask you is one relationship which really sticks like a burr, and it's your brother, Kelly, the rodeo cowboy. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that relationship a little and how you draw from it to build some really key themes in the narrative of this book?
2: Yeah, so, so like me, my brother was a person of the land. And, you know, um, he really loved... Horses. And the reason he loved horses is because, you know, we were settler families. We settled in the Monashi Mountains on both sides of the family. And that means that we, um, you know, there was really, you know, it's a land of First Nations, of Aboriginal people, Indigenous people. Settlers came and and built farms and ranches, and they logged the forest to make these farms and ranches. And horses were involved all the time, and cowboys. And Kelly fell in love with the cowboy life. Um, I fell in love with the forestry life, but they were interwoven together. You know, that was really the same life of the land, just expressed in different ways. And so Kelly and I shared that deep, deep love of looking after the land. But he was interested in horses and cowboying, and he um, he followed in my my uncle Charles's my uh, footsteps and my uncle Wayne, who were all both ranchers, and eventually he became a farrier and a blacksmith and a, a cowboy, so he herded cows. Uh, as a, for a living, and um, so we were bonded together by this sh- this shared love, and we were, you know, we, we grew up together like this, we were, you know, brother and sister, really, really tight but then, you know, as you get older and you start to find your own way, we sort of diverged a little bit, And um, and I was trying to build a career as a young woman in a man's world, which was forestry, and there were very few of us and my brother was in this man's world that I always thought was like from a century ago. It was the old times. He loved the old ways of being on the land, of riding horses, of being out there for days at a time. And and so his thinking was shaped more and more by that about herding cattle. And he started to, you know, become one of the, the cows, like bulls and cows, and and do you want me to go on
1: with this story? Well, <laughs> I find it, what, what what is very present in your book is silence yeah Uh, the silence of the forest sometimes it's solace Um, the silence your relationship with mary when the phone goes it's a beautiful beautiful line where the silence between two people can who connect but what no word needs to be spoken you lost your brother in a tragic accident but his silence is so loud in the book and that was um what i wanted to sort of just draw out because these 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 relationships that you you thread through your science and through the narrative they they kind of resonate with each other they're doing exactly what we're going to get onto, which is the heart of your your, your discovery but that's yeah. I, I just kind of want to communicate to everybody in the room this this weaving is so sophisticated between the echo and family and your 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 professional work Your career, forester to scientist. Now, come on, you're a woman. (laughs) I've spent a little bit of time in Canada. Uh, How tough was that as a forester prior to your science? It was
2: bloody tough. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was really hard. I mean, so even though I grew up in a family of foresters, women didn't do forestry. It was never... It's never something I imagined I would be able to do. And, and there were women weren't really allowed into the profession. And, and I didn't even know what forestry was. I had no idea. But I, I eventually did happen to stumble on that in university. And at the time, they had just opened the doors to let the first girls into the faculty to, to study forestry. And so, you know, all the young men that were in the classes and the professors, they were they were, you know, very proud of the, they were very macho and um, you know, they were basically lumberjacks that had just gone up one step further. And and it was very rough and ready and the girls were really, you know, we didn't really belong. <laughs> um, but we stayed. We stuck with it in spite of, you know, the you know, I remember this one professor, he would as an example, and I don't don't write about this in the book, but he loved the ginkgo tree, right? And the ginkgo leaf is like, you know, there's a, a stem and then there's like, you know, it looks... And he would hold it up and he would say, "This is what does this remind you of? And all the girls would go, oh my God, do we have to <laughs> endure this again? And he would go, you know, it would go on and on. Um, but somehow, in spite of all the jokes and the sexism and the trying to get rid of us, we stuck with it and... It
1: it is the silence again. There's this one moment where it went a bit wrong in the forest, and your your vehicle gets stuck, and you're overnight with the bears, and you come back in, and you're waiting for the bollocking, and instead the calendar drops from the wall. It's just such a good moment, and it's just you don't you don't need words. It's a tiny little moment to break that. Agonizing silence. But we'll get to where the voice, the activist, comes out in due course. I want to now get into something that is this, um, this really key epiphany moment for you. And I'm going to go back to something which is, I've been reading it alongside your book, rereading it alongside your book, which is E.O. Wilson Letters to a Young Scientist, which I just think is a most magnificent, um, it's got magnificent advice to a young scientist. And it says, he writes, look especially for oddities, small deviations and phenomena that seem trivial at first, but on closer examination might prove important. Build scenarios in your head when scanning information available to you. Make use of puzzlement. I want you to explain your puzzlement. What was that moment for you?
2: You know, I I think um, I I always kind of was looking so okay, so I was in this forest industry that was tearing down our old growth forests and and still is today, and replacing them with with these plantations of tree farms, and I was so puzzled by why would anybody want to do that. So there was that puzzle. I wanted to solve that puzzle because I knew it was what we were doing was so destructive, self-destructive, and so I and I started and of course I loved the soil. I ate dirt from the moment I could, you know, grew up. It was always a fascination with me, and I knew what was going wrong was in the soil. And so I started looking at those details of the soil, like I described those layers. I also noticed things like, you know, there's all these creatures that live in the soil, they make holes. They, they run along roots. They There are fungi that run through the soil and form threads like gauze. And there are creatures living on and in them. Um, and it's fascinating. And I started to look at those details and realize that what we were doing is we were ripping that whole society, that organized system, apart. And, and I And that was where my curiosity led me is, what is it that we're ripping apart? We don't even know what we're ripping apart. And so that's where I went into my discovery is to to try to figure out what that thing was.
1: So can you tell us about the magical dance between the paper birch and the Douglas fir and that experiment?
2: Yeah, So, so this... So just starting going back to what the foresters were doing was taking these complex, diverse, beautiful ecosystems and simplifying them down to, say, Douglas fir. And Douglas fir or pine or spruce was earning people huge amounts of money, massive amounts of money in cutting these magical forests down. And so they were planted back with the idea that if we can just get rid of all those other species and just have Douglas fir, just think how rich we'll be. I mean, it really was that simple. And so they were, foresters were putting back magnificent mixed forests with Douglas fir and, and spraying with herbicides species like birch and weeding out the cedars. And really the diversity was just ending up in these big burn piles that would be burned up. And that was making the forest sick. And so I started to look at, what if, you know, you left the birch? Maybe the forest won't be so sick. Maybe the birds will be there. Maybe the squirrels will come back. Um, and so I, I I started to look at, and, and I realized, too, in looking at the natural patterns that the firs were healthier when the birches were there and the cedars were there. Um, and so I started looking below ground at these linkages, and I thought, oh, my God, they're... You know, I, I eventually learned that they were linked together in this fungal network, this gauze that underlays the forest floor and that they're connected. And I started labeling them with isotopes, which was always a fascination of mine. What if I followed where things went from tree to tree and I learned how to use carbon 14 and carbon 13 and and N15, all these different isotopes you can use as tracers. And I remember going to my PhD advisor and saying, what if we did this? And he said, that would be really hard to do. But I I did it, and I saw where it went, and it turns out that Douglas Fir and Paper Birch were trading carbon back and forth between each other. And that completely upended what we were doing with these birch trees, getting rid of them because we thought that the foresters thought, oh, they're, they're competing, they're shading these Douglas firs. We've got to get rid of them, spray them, get, get rid of these awful things. But it turns out that the more they shaded the Douglas fir, the more carbon they sent to the Douglas fir. And so it kept Douglas fir in the ecosystem and that, that they were in a dance that maintained diversity of the forest.
0: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala, Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before.
1: It's so exciting, the magical dance, because what you're saying is these things are co- cooperating, yeah. not competing. And that was heretical to the scientific community. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it was. And, and, and another way to think of it is that they have this very complex relationship Right? They're 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 communicating with each other in a myriad of ways. And yes, they they compete for sure. You know, the birch does shade Douglas fir. That's what, you know, that's what we think of as competition. But at the same time, they're cooperating by sending them carbon and providing nitrogen for you know, through support of bacterial microbiofilms. Um, it's this complex conversation. And so yeah, so that was what I was unraveling, and I forget. What the
1: point of your question No, no, no. I'm going to just keep on building out from there because the weave of the book, I'm slightly pulling it from the back, but the mother tree. Can you just talk about that concept of the mother tree and what you mean by that very powerful phrase?
2: Yeah. So, so forests have structure, right? There's big trees and little trees. There's all different species. Even within a species, there's a huge variation in how fast they grow, how tall they grow. And so just like in this group of people, you all have different heights and characteristics and personalities. It's the same in forests. And so... In what I did is that in trying to uncover what this network looked like, the fungal threads that link trees together, we actually dissected a forest that was a natural primary forest with all different ages by rolling back the forest floor and looking at all the fungal connections between the trees. And what we found is that everything was connected to everything else. All the trees were interconnected in multiple ways, right? This if I was connected to you, I'd have like Like a hundred linkages to you through all my different roots. And a hundred to you and a thousand to you. And the bigger the tree is, the more linkages there is because there's more roots. And so so the bigger trees also have big crowns and they photosynthesize huge amounts of carbon. They're shoveling massive amounts of energy down into the soil, feeding into the roots and through these mycorrhizal networks and feeding the entire forest. So it was at that moment of making the map, I realized these big trees were so essential in the forest. They were the big connectors. And that they actually, through these connections, nurtured their youngsters. They nurtured the, un- the, the seedlings coming up around them. And that's what led us to realize that these were really
1: mother trees. So they recognize their own kin. They do. It's just so bizarre. It, it is, but is it? Well, as I'm reading it, you, you, you have this parallel with your own family and you're yeah. walking through the forest with your daughter, passing on that wisdom. It, that's where it just resonates with me because I'm not a scientist. And that's what the art of this book is. You have this constant metaphor running with those familial yeah. relationships. You know, some of, the, some of the people that help her on their experiments <laughs> are her father and her, her, her your, your partner it's just it's you've got everyone involved as well as a great number of researchers that i admire how much she recognize and name them through the book what i would like to ask you is the sort of this this resistance you got you're a doctoral Mm -hmm. student i believe when that research is first put out and it and it goes in nature magazine which in Mm -hmm. the context of your world is Mm -hmm. is a very big noise i think you got the cover is that Mm -hmm. right in 97 um but what how did what happened out there how did people respond to it
2: yeah um, <laughs> so I it was actually the first paper I'd ever published in my life. you know I, so I finished my doctoral thesis and I my brother passed away soon afterwards um, after I finished my my dissertation and I thought oh, I just I just couldn't do anything right I was paralyzed and, and then my my committee and my supervisor says you not, you need to publish, you need to publish this work. And so I, I ended up sending the main paper to Nature and they rejected it at first and then they accepted it. And then when it was published, it was there was this big backlash and I was not expecting it at all. I was grieving. I was actually having my first child. And then the the backlash against the academic world just hit me like a tsunami. And it was like, you know, I think it was because there was so much vested intellectually in the idea that competition drives evolution and drives ecology that, that, and, and, People had built careers around this, and it's not that it's not important, it is, but there's more to it than that. And even Darwin knew there was more to it than that, but the academic world was not ready to change its mind yet. And so I got this huge backlash that I was not expecting at this very vulnerable time of my life. And then the forest community also had really invested in this idea that competition was so important. All the forestry practices, agriculture practices, were designed around managing competition. And so there was a huge industry, a herbicide industry, a thinning industry. You know, the forest industry was all designed to, to you know, hold up this idea. And so the backlash there was huge. It was like being hit with another tsunami and... Yeah, so I actually got to the point where I thought, I can't do this anymore.
1: I I remember being pregnant and not being able to take on any argument. I just couldn't cope with that combative sort of approach. You were just about to have, I think, your first child. Um, That backlash kind of silenced you and then you had an interview with i think a globe and mail journalist and you let something slip you maybe shouldn't have let slip though thank god you did <laughs> five words that, that, what was it she
2: asked me um, you know is it good that they're getting rid of birches and aspens and the biodiversity from ecosystems and i said and i was very pregnant I was like, I was a week from having my child. And, and I said, for all the good they're doing, they might as well paint rocks. <laughs> and, and then I was sitting in my office and I'm going, I wonder if that was a good thing to say. You know? And I went over to my supervisor, Alan, Alan Weiss, who I absolutely adored and still adore him to this day. And I said, Alan, you know, I just had this interview. And I told him, and he goes, Oh my God. <laughs> And he got on the phone and he phoned the reporter and he said, can you please not print that? And she said, well, I can't promise you. And then it ended up on the front page of the global I love that
1: journalist for breaking (laughs) her own off record rules, I have to say, because it did unleash the activist and the voice out of that period of quiet and silence and withdrawal and mourning. Um, and the book now takes on a different pace as this kind of activist voice starts to, starts to evolve. One thing I'd like to ask you, because this really is a, a book that resonated with me as a female reader, but you're careful not to manipulate gender politics in the book that turns into any kind of rant about a male-dominated world that you've occupied as a female scientist and a forester. But I can still feel the intractability. How difficult was it really to break that gender wall?
2: really hard and and the the you know the gender wall still exists but it's or the ceiling i should say but the ceiling is getting higher and higher and so more and more women are getting into higher and higher positions but you won't find a ceo of a logging company and you won't find a minister of forest that's female and you won't find you know an associate and a dean in a university in canada that's a female you know there is there is still a very solid ceiling there. And it's really important to get women into those positions because that's when you get fundamental change. And we haven't gotten there yet. We're we're still in the old ages. And we just we just actually hired a new dean and, and a woman applied and I was like, yes. And she had all these great ideas and we and and the faculty couldn't do it. Just couldn't go there. And so we we hired a male Dean, who happens to be one of the most progressive deans that we have ever had, there, but still, it just shows that we're still not quite there. Um,
1: but there, there was that one scene with a tall male scientist you don't name him, he's just tall, <laughs> and you're in a forest with a tall man and he humiliates you. Yeah, what was his line, Miss Birch? Yeah, I mean, anyway, it's fierce. Because as you're reading this, it's a, really, it's a really sophisticated feminist book, I think. That's how I read it. It's a woman's story, a love letter to your children, your grandmother, your mother. It's And, you know, the mama bears that are every so often popping up in the chapters, the mother tree. It's a call to arms, to be brave, to embrace risk, believe in your intuition, all of those things. But here's a question, which is an intimate one, balancing that massive career, massive celebrity, with motherhood—how difficult was it, and huh. is it to pull off?
2: Yeah, it, it was so hard, you know. And I think I wanted to write about that because I wanted to reach out to women, especially, you know, as a scientist in in a in academia or in forestry or in the profession. You can see women just like we can't even talk about it, right? We're so worried of 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 losing our jobs and losing everything w- that we tried to gain and and becoming and being so comp- like the first professor in my faculty um, was in 1990 right that was only what 20 30 years ago and that woman is still there and she, you can imagine what she had to go through to get there and she is so stern i mean she's very very lovely and beautiful person but she will not let herself you know, be emotional or, you know, express her womanhood. And I really wanted to break that open a little bit for women, to allow us to be ourselves a little bit, to give us permission to be ourselves and bring our full selves to the table, to the science, because it really is important that we see, because we see things a little bit differently, and we need that full picture. You know, the forest needs that full picture. So yeah, it was really, it was really was a goal of mine to try and express that, but not so on the nose
1: well you do i mean you describe also in very practical times, terms these nine hour commutes between your academic life and your private life and you know huge and there's one where you're you're looking forward to the sabbatical to be with your daughters in a more in a more complete way and you say until that magical year i'd spirit across the mountains each weekend to reabsorb their lives my motherhood like time lapse photography so beautiful That's why I love this book. It's so beautiful. It's so moving. Thank you. It really is. uh, I've got to be conscious of time. We've got questions. Okay, so I need to just slightly move on a little bit. The other place where I think I feel the female strand is in the strong theme of healing. You get cancer and a particular group of people hold you Mm -hmm. and teach you. And it resonates also with your science. Can you talk through that a little for us?
2: Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> cancer is a very scary thing. Any life-threatening disease is terrifying. And and it's not something you want to go through alone. I mean, we are individuals, and we, we are born alone, I guess. We live alone. We die alone. But that's not totally true. You know, we are a collective. We we are shaped by it. We are our relationships with each other. And even though I felt alone in that diagnosis of cancer, what I did is I connected with the other women going through chemotherapy, and we formed a group, a network, and and the, and we still are, you know, it's been 10 years, and I mean, there's a text on my phone right now from a couple of them saying, how's it going over there? We're so close, and it turns out that that closeness, that connection is a strong healing aspect of recovering from illness like cancer. And it's the same in forests. Um, (laughs) You know, one of the things I went on to discover with my students is that when old trees or even young trees are injured or ill, that they send messages back and forth to their neighbors, and the neighbors get those messages. They're actually... It's actually... um, a chemical, biochemical, they're defense enzymes that transmit through these mycorrhizal networks that then are picked up by the neighboring trees, which then upregulate their, they get that message, they upregulate their RNA, and they start developing or they start manufacturing defense enzymes, or they, they, they're encoded to produce more of these defense enzymes. And then those plants are then can defend themselves against the enemy that they've been warned about by their by their neighbor their mother tree or their or their child <laughs> in the forest and then when we try when in our experiments we challenged those upregulated trees with that disease again and they were resistant and we found out that not only was that seedling resistant but the next generation from it its offspring were resistant and their offspring were resistant so it carried on through the generations these messages so so you know that connection in forests; it's the same in humans, and that is why I think I and my 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 cancer buddies were all alive, were all fine, we all made it through, um, and that was one of the key things: is is our connection.
1: It's that the phrase you use: "We're built for recovery." Yeah. And ultimately, I find this book um, very life affirming. I find it very optimistic, but the state of our forests. Is not how do you balance those two things? Because I feel your optimism and your compassion, wanting to win, but in reality, where do you think our forests are going?
2: You know, the the great thing about forests is that they're regenerative and these healing networks—they're real. They self-organized to regenerate, and yes, I mean our forests are in trouble, and you know, thanks to us so for a number of reasons so we're we're still cutting down primary forests we're still cutting down old growth forests to do things like make cardboard and toilet paper which is ridiculous right why would you take a beautiful 2000 year old tree and turn it into an amazon package that you can send halfway around the world it's crazy but we're doing that and in sacrificing these forests we're releasing massive amounts of carbon into the atmosphere and that's one of the that's the second cause next to fossil fuel uh, burning for climate change. So we're in this vicious feedback loop. So what gives me hope, though, is that we know what to do. We know how to do this better, you know.
1: But are they listening? Is policy changing as a result?
2: It's really slow, but you know what? what's happening is that there's a number of people who are vocal. And, like, this audience, you guys, for example... Nobody would listen to me 10 years ago or five years ago. You know, it's like, who, 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 you know, that's ridiculous. But you're listening. You care, right? And that is where the movement happens. There is a movement happening. And that movement is making the governments and making the companies to wake up And they're they're starting to listen, too. So in Canada, we do nothing but clear-cutting. But I was just talking to one of the main foresters in British Columbia, and they said, we're not going to clear-cut anymore. We're going to leave the old mother trees. That's a massive change, right? That's never... I've never seen a change like that in an instant like that. Um, And it's because the public is pressuring governments to do a better job because we're scared, right? And we want a future, and we want our kids to be able to live their lives and have healthy, fruitful lives. So it's really up to all of us to to listen and and
1: move, act. But we're also animals that need stories. Stories are the thing that endures and persuades. And I'm just before we turn to the floor for some questions. I'm fascinated about the process of writing because half of your life is in academia with all its complex thinking terminology dryness dare i say and then this other heart side of you your soul is in the forest and in my in my mind in poetry how do you flip between those two things how was that process of writing this book
2: you know i i i, I wanted to be a writer when i was a kid and i had a little bit of a talent for it Although, you know, I went down the practical side because I needed a job. My mom always says, You've got to have a job. And so I went into forestry because I could get a job, and I didn't think I could as a writer. And so I had that in me, but then I became a scientist. And when you write science, it's very, it's like writing a recipe book. You know, there's a prescription. And to be a good science writer, you've got to follow that prescription because scientists, when they pick up a journal article or they have a stack, you know, I've got to read 30 articles in order to write this paper, you've got to get through them really quickly and absorb it very... And so there's a, a recipe for it. You know, first you write the abstract and it's structured this way. Then you write the introduction, it's structured this way, and objectives, there's... And then, then the methods. And, and so it's it's really is a... It's a very prescriptive process. And I just felt like I was in a straitjacket. And I wanted, and and also nobody reads them except other scientists. And I I knew that I had a story here. And so I thought, wouldn't it be lovely to write a book that brings this desire to write creatively and rekindle that in myself and bring the science that I so wanted everybody to know, because it was so important for us to know this stuff, and bring it into a, a book that when you're reading it, You don't have to work at the science to understand it. You read the story and you go, "Oh, I happened to learn the science along the way." So that was what I was trying to. (laughs) That's (laughs) me.
1: That's exactly what was happening. But you know, you're like this. What this book has done is, you're like the mother tree of a kind of whole canopy of new stories, new books that are coming out, all massively codependent upon that upon that earth wire which you have given us with this life story that's what's so important within the pages of this i'd like to at this moment in time i think be generous and interconnected and ask the floor if there's any questions
3: thank you so much this has just been fascinating so much of what you said resonates with me because my family's had a cabin in northern minnesota on national forest land for four generations now so um at least in the summertime i felt like i lived close to the uh, earth and our family dog also fell down the outhouse. So. But um, my question really has to do with fire, because mm-hmm. um, we've just had devastating yeah. um, wildfires. Uh, this summer, in northern Minnesota, which used to have some of the cleanest air in the continental United States, uh, had air quality indexes worse than any place on Earth because of these really terrible wildfires. Mm-hmm. And we've recently been talking with uh, forest rangers about some of the uh, managing fire better for, mm-hmm. so for 100 years we've just had this policy of fire suppression mm-hmm. and now there's all this fuel on the ground and that combined with record droughts leads to these crazy fires yeah. well the native american population they used to do deliberate fire setting every five years or so to sort of clear the understory and make farms with combined plants and they had mm-hmm. these practices yeah. that meant that you didn't have these out-of-control fires yeah. and I guess I'm wondering whether there's any talk about adopting uh, sort of good fire practices in Canada
0: yeah.
3: whether you see there's any way it's forward def- with that. It's
2: a huge conversation in North America and I mean it and a, it should be It probably is around the world but um, you're right like the suppression of fire has caused massive fuel buildups, which you know, with all that fuel and the heat and, and also the heat creating more ignition sources, lightning, we've created this catastrophe. And so there is a lot, you know, there is a, a lot of talk about prescribed burning and we definitely need to go there and we're starting. The problem, the problem is that we also have a big population that's grown in and among those forests and there's a lot of private property. And it's interesting because the Native Americans or the First Nations, the concept of private property, which is kind of a tangential thing, wasn't, you know, there was no private property, right? It was the land. And we looked after the land. Um, but now we've got private property and boundaries. And, and so those need to be respected. Otherwise, you know, there'll be social chaos as people try to protect their chattels and their lives. And um, and so that needs to be managed. So that we don't have a social crisis. And, and so that means that we can't just do prescribed burning as, um, it has to be done extremely carefully to protect yeah. all those interests. It's gotta be done. It's a science, right? It's a very, a very special and precise science. And and we need more and more people to understand that. And it's even in a lot of areas, we won't be able to do that. So there's alternatives where you go and use mechanical means to clear out the understory, um, to protect villages, because if those fires take off and get into the crown uh, under these heat domes, it's catastrophic. Yeah. And the fires burn more severely. They're they're more extensive than they were historically. So they're damaging to the ecosystems, um, whereas they were always regenerative to the ecosystems. So we we have to be extremely careful. But you know, humans can and will play a role in reintroducing fire to reinvigorate our ecosystems.
0: What organizations, either in the UK or the US, would you recommend supporting that are doing this kind of work or building on your work to? Promote diversity of forests, and and just have one other question: Did you read The Lorax as a small child?
2: <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's lots of really great organizations, um, and you know that that are trying to approach this problem from various angles. Um, so I can give you a few names. So Canopy Planet, for example, is trying to work with supply chains to clean up supply chains so that we're not actually harvesting old growth. Forest to make stuff that we don't really need. So that's one really, you know, if you're going to support someone, that's a really good one. In Western Canada, there's another uh, organization called the Ancient Forest Alliance, and their, their goal is to, is to save the ancient forests. In the Amazon, there's another organization called the Amazon Sacred Headwaters Initiative, which is trying to save the sacred headwaters of Ecuador and Peru. Because once those forests collapse, you know, we're all going to be in trouble. And they are within about five years of collapsing. So there are, you know, key, key, key. I mean, the Greenpeace is another great organization. Sierra Club, there's quite a few of them.
0: Half the population of the world now are urban dwellers. And nature connectedness is a real issue, I think, for them. Do you have any advice for us urban dwellers on how we can reconnect with nature in an effective way?
2: Yeah, I mean, the fact that you're here means that you are already. But um, lots of people aren't. And, and I think that you know, just spending time with a tree, I mean, really, it's like meditating, right? When you meditate, it's like you start doing it, your, your mind goes off in a million directions. And, you know, you're thinking about all the stuff that you're not supposed to be. And then suddenly you get into that space. And you go, oh, I get it. It, You know, it it doesn't... Once you get there, it's not... It doesn't you don't lose that and it's the same connecting with trees and plants and forests is just go there and spend time just be silent with the tree and lean against that tree and feel it and then you're connected and you never lose that connection and then once you have that you can you know that love will never go away and then you can put that into action and so i i my my You know, my advice to urban dwellers is just go out there um, and just spend time and turn off your cell phone and maybe lay on the forest floor. This is what I I get my students to do, you know, at UBC. You know, a lot of the students come from from Asia and they've never been in a forest before. They're from Shanghai or or Beijing or or Hong Kong and, and unfortunately for them, they've never been there. I take them in the forest and they're, like, really nervous at first and they're like, where's my phone? And, oh, my God, i got to listen to... And then we just sit there for five minutes, and they start to calm down. They stop fidgeting, and they and they and their heartbeats, I'm sure, go down. Mine does. And we start listening to the birds and the squirrels and the bugs. And, and by the end of the course, they can't wait to get back out there every week because I take them out there every single week, and we just do that every time. And then they're hooked. And then they become the champions of the forest from then on.
1: You're so modest because... In that forest there's just a bear behind every tree <laughs> and half the time she's running up them. So in our English Oakland where I think we're in safe territory but yeah very very good question. Any others?
0: Uh, uh, thank you very much for your book oh. it's really wonderful. Thank you. But even more important thank you for being you. Oh, thank you. I think <laughs> that's really wonderful. I can't echo more than what was said before. I have a question for you there is a technique which is growing in terms of planting trees in a way, planting saplings in a different way, where they're trying to plant intensively. So you're talking about four or five saplings per square meter mm. of multi-species. multi, multi species.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Would you like to comment on that? Because that's quite an intensive way of planting, and what you think of that in, times of, in terms of reforestation.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so there's a couple of concepts there. One is the diversity of species, and, um, you know, it's important to know what the natural diversity is there, you know, and what form of diversity that is. We often think of species diversity, but there's genetic diversity, there's structural diversity, but diversity in general matters. And the reason it matters, if we think of, say, the, the biogeochemical cycles, which is at a much bigger scale, it happens at a bigger scale, but it's really local in, in where it's activated, and that's right in that structural, structurally diverse forest. And so how it works is if you have many, like if you have five species versus one, those five species occupy different layers of the canopy, above ground and in the canopy below ground, the root canopy. And in do- so doing, they capture light and resources at different pools in the soil in that resource profile. And by more, more fully capturing the resources, they're able to actually put on more growth and they store more carbon. And they're also more resistant in case there's some kind of injury or infestation or, or infection in the area. At least one of those species will survive. And so it's important from a from you know, from a productivity point of view and a carbon sequestration and storage point of view, and also resistance and resilience to, to damage in forests. So diversity really matters. Um, the other point you made was about planting species densely together. And it depends on where you are, you know. So, so some species like aspen, for example, naturally grows in very dense stands. You can go into an aspen, young aspen stand, and there'll be 10,000 stems per hectare. That means that there's, you know, a tree every few centimeters. And that's natural for that stand, and it will self thin over time, where the you know the, it will become more widely spaced. But we have to be really careful not to not to take that to the extreme in all ecosystems, because when you plant really densely, you can actually for example, in fire-prone ecosystems, if they're planted densely together, it can actually spread fire more quickly if it's the wrong place. And we're actually doing making those mistakes in North America right now, right? Because, you know, we get sort of on this wrong-headed path. We'll say, oh, if we just plant more trees, then, you know, if, we- if some die, then at least there'll be some left. But we're actually creating a very dense stand that fire propagates through very quickly. And so it's really important to understand the ecosystem, the local ecosystem, System and what naturally works there, the diversity of the species and the spacing. Not everything will work the same way everywhere. Yeah.
1: Hi, um, I've got a question. I was just wondering, um, you're talking about mother trees. Is there any possibility of a father tree? Oh, for sure. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and I, no disrespect to all the fathers out there. Um, the reason I call them mother trees is just because of that regenerative. Aspect of the old trees nurturing their young. It's almost like it's a metaphor. Um, you know, in most tree species, the mothers and fathers are in the same tree. You'll have female cones and, and male cones right on the same tree. There are exceptions. Um, the yew tree, for example, there is male and female trees. But the idea of the nurturing capacity of old trees is what I was trying to get at. So they can be, you know, mothers and fathers in the same tree. And, I, and I'll just add one more point that, you know, in our, Aborig- or our indigenous cultures in, across the world, there's a recognition of mother trees and father trees and grandmother trees and grandfather trees. All those terms are used across cultures because these old trees place have long been recognized to play such important roles uh, in connecting the forest. It's been known for, for a long, long, long time.
1: And the father of your children in the book, Doug, I mean, he's a huge presence of connectedness and nurture with your two beautiful girls. So yes. It kind of, it all ties and resonates like this extraordinary fungal web. Um, have we got time for any more? One over here.
4: Hi. I just want to... Sorry, I'm in the dark. Um,
1: It's very blinding, the light I know, I know. It's really hard.
4: I just want to say once again, thank you so much. Um, Your work has deeply impacted my work in a very bizarre way. Um, I work on mega projects. I say this very carefully in this sort of room, um, which is like big infrastructure projects. But it's really influenced how I see the systems of people who work on those projects and how we need to change the way we work. And for me, I suppose this conversation about male, female, etc., I almost see it as a conversation more about something to do with finding our indigenous souls or mm-hmm. speaking to our indigenous souls yeah. and the patterns of how regenerative work works. And I just sort of wonder about, you know, is it that we need to reconnect to patterns of our lives or see it through mm-hmm. a systems viewpoint
1: rather yeah.
4: than I, a male-female divide? Yeah, it's it's
2: about connection, right? It, and I'd be interested to know about your Project maybe we can talk about it afterwards. It sounds interesting, and, and but not not to get um, distracted, but by that. Um, but that that the indigenous part of it, the it's it's how we see the world that's so important. My indigenous colleagues, it, the their whole way of seeing the world is that you know that it's it's to cultivate the world, to to nurture it, to look after it, and to have and to, and there are cultural institutions that make sure that, that that is carried on through the generations. And, and there's, there's status in, 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 you know, in nations like chief, chiefdoms and that they, that they have that responsibility, those obligations to look after the salmon and look after the bears and the wolves and look after the people. And if you slip up, you lose that status. Um, and so it, it is, it's in the culture, it's a worldview, and you know somehow we, we all have indigenous roots, you know, and we need to get back and remember that that's what it's about. It's not about exploiting our Mother Earth, it's about caring for our Mother Earth, and that is the, that is the, the, the worldview, that, and that we are all connected and we're interdependent. That is what we need to remember, yeah. So thanks for that comment
1: i would like to say to you you're just a gift your book is a gift your science a gift your prose is a gift so thank thank you for being so generous with that fierce intelligence and that compassion thank you i think from all of us you're you're magnificent
0: (laughs) (laughs) this episode starred suzanne simard and the host was sophie roberts it was produced by Esme Bright for How To Academy and Freddie Matthews for The Conduit. The series is made by me, Vas Christadulu, and Dana Outcult. Our editor is John Doughty. If we've whet your appetite for more groundbreaking conversations around science and nature, consider joining How To Plus, our digital subscription service. You can join all our live streams for free, access a video archive of hundreds of past events and even listen to everything on the move in a members-exclusive podcast. It's the digital subscription service for people who love big ideas. Find out more at howtoacademy.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.